Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. So, if you would, take your Bible and join me in the book of the Revelation, chapter 21. We're going to actually study from verse, verse 1 all the way through chapter 22, and verse 5, because actually there's an inappropriate chapter division, and verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22 really go better with chapter 21. And in preparation for our study, let me read for you chapter 21, verse 1 through verse 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When the Lord Jesus Christ saves us and makes us new creation, there are many, many wonderful things that transpire, and there are many wonderful promises that immediately become the possession of the believer. Three in particular stand out, I believe. One is when we get saved, all of our sins are forgiven. All of our sins are washed away, past, present, and future. Another wonderful promise is that our future home is promised to be a place called heaven. Uh, the word heaven actually occurs more than 500 times in the Bible, 50 times in the book of Revelation alone. But a third promise, and maybe the most precious of all, is that we will actually experience the intimate presence of God for all of eternity, and yes, we will see Him. Revelation is the appropriate book to end the Bible. And Revelation 21 and 22, I believe, are the appropriate chapters to end the book of Revelation. We've worked our way through the uh, horrific judgment of God with the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments. We have seen that God's judgment upon this world is righteous when we looked at Babylon in chapter 17 and chapter 18, this evil empire that has opposed all that is good from God throughout all of human history. But then in chapter 19, we're introduced to a wonderful event called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And immediately following that is the glorious second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 20, we are introduced to the thousand-year reign of Christ, his millennial kingdom, a short rebellion that follows that thousand-year reign, and then what is known as the great white throne judgment in chapter 20, verse 11 through verse 15. Chapter 21 could not stand in greater contrast with the final verses of chapter 20 because there it is judgment. 
But now we are introduced to a wonderful vision of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And what I want to do this morning is walk you through these verses very quickly and just simply highlight eight wonderful truths about eternity and heaven. Number one, we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 that our citizenship is in heaven. And now, John, to the best of his ability, and we need to recognize what John sees is beyond human description. Uh, mere human words cannot grasp fully what the glory of eternity is going to be like. And yet John, in his best efforts, tries to paint for us a picture that can give us an inkling of what it is going to be like. And he begins by pointing out what God is going to give us. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. Why is it new? Well, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And then interestingly, he adds, and the sea was no more. Of course, if you've studied through the book of Revelation, you know that the imagery of the sea is used repeatedly to talk about the turmoil uh, and all of the conflict of the Gentile nations in opposition to God. But now all of that conflict, all of that turmoil is no more, and God is reigning fully and completely in his majesty, his omnipotence, and his glory. But then John adds, and I saw something else. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A couple of things I would note. Number one, there is going to be a new earth. Yes, we're going to have uh, a new heaven that we will be uh, a part of for all of eternity. But this creation that God made, we are told in Romans 8, it's groaning. But it is waiting for the redemption of the sons of God because just as we are made new, God is also going to make this earth brand new as well. But in addition to that, he now introduces a third uh, figure, and that is the new Jerusalem. And when you look at his description of the new Jerusalem, you discover two things about it. Number one, uh, it is a place. But number two, it is also a person because, or a people because he says the new Jerusalem was coming down out of heaven from God, but it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And of course, that refers us back to chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, where we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the Lord Jesus Christ takes as his bride the church, the body of Christ. But we will see, beginning at verse 9, a massive description of the New Jerusalem. So again, in apocalyptic literature, certain phrases are often kind of fluid, and they can bear more than one meaning. And here, the New Jerusalem should be understood both as a people but also as a place. But the Bible promises us we are going for all of eternity to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. But number two, we will also live in intimate and personal communion with our God. We see this in verse 3. There the Bible says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne. We don't know if it's the voice of God or perhaps a voice of an angel, but a loud voice, and here's the declaration, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
and he will dwell with them. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Of course, I read this phrase, and my mind immediately goes back to John chapter 1 and verse 14, where the Bible says, and the word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us pitched his tent among us, came to live right there in our midst. And now this is fulfilled again in all of its beauty and glory because we're now brought into the very presence of God where we will be for all of eternity and, yes, forever and ever and ever. We have the assurance and we have the confidence that he is our God. But number three, we will no longer experience the horrible effects of sin. Chapter 21 in verse 4, I believe, is one of the most precious verses in all the Bible. Every time I preach a funeral for a believer, I will find a way at some point in that message to reference chapter 21 and verse 4. And let me tell you this. The older you get, the more precious this promise will be. You see, the longer you live, the more sorrow you see, the more heartache you experience, the more death you observe. But here the Bible says, in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, what will our God do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And not only that, death, both physical death, spiritual death, shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, that is, heartbrokenness, neither shall there be crying over sorrow and loss and pain and sin. No, pain will be no more for the former things they have all passed away. I often refer to the new heaven and the new earth as Eden regained and more. And what I mean by that is everything we lost when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3, we get back and even more than that. And, of course, the one thing that is going to depart that I think causes all of us to celebrate and praise our God is death. No more death. No more cancer. No more heart attacks. No more dementia, no more Alzheimer's, nothing like that will remain forever and ever and ever and ever. We will no longer experience the horrible effects of sin. Number five, we will rest in the sure promises of God. Verse five and verse six. Now, he who was seated on the throne, this is, of course, a reference to God the Father, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. Why? Because just as the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, is faithful and true, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, so God's word is also trustworthy and true. You can count on it. You can believe it. God will never fail. God will never, ever let you down. Just a few months ago, I was talking to a young lady that had gone through a significant amount of trauma in her life, especially related to sexual abuse. And as you can imagine, she goes through seasons of depression and despondency and hurt. And she had written me and was just talking about how at this particular point in time, she was feeling so low and feeling such despair. And I simply wrote back to her that I would be praying for her. But I said, let me just remind you of one thing. 
In all of my life, I can give you a, a witness. The Lord Jesus Christ has never let me down. When I failed him, he didn't fail me. When I, as a teenager, turned my back on him, he did not turn his back on me. No, my Lord Jesus has always kept his word and more. And over the last several months, several times, she has written me back simply to say, I want you to know those words have meant so very much to me, and you're right. He will never let us down because he is true and faithful and his word is trustworthy and true. And so in essence, God adds an exclamation point to what he just said. And he said to me, it is done because I am the alpha and the omega, the first letter and the last letter. I am the beginning and the end. And then a beautiful promise to all of us who belong to him, to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life, and I do so without payment. I do so without debt. In other words, we all know that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works. And indeed, there is nothing we could ever pay God to earn our right into this glorious place called heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. No, it is all free and all of grace. But number five. We also live as God's adopted children with no fear of the second death. Verse 7 is a verse of blessing. Verse 8 is a verse of warning. He says there in verse 7, the one who conquers, many translations use the word who overcome. And again, if you've studied the book of Revelation, you know that the theme of the overcomer uh, is a common one, and we overcome, the Bible says, by the word of God and the witness of our testimony by the blood of the Lamb. First John talks extensively likewise about how we, as those who are in Christ, are overcomers. And so he tells us the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, well, here's his future, uh, here's his inheritance. I will be his God, and he will be my son and my daughter. Of course, the Bible speaks beautifully through the pen of the Apostle Paul, both in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4, of the fact that in Christ we have been adopted into the family of God, and now we have the wonderful privilege of calling him Abba, Father, Daddy. By the way, you can compare Christianity to all the other religions in the world, and almost without exception, none of them has that kind of tender understanding of a relationship with God. None of them talk about God in such precious, tender, intimate terms as does the Bible. He is our Father. He is our Daddy. We are His children forever and ever. But in contrast... As for the cowardly, number one, the faithless, number two, the detestable, number three, murderers, number four, the sexually immoral, number five, sorcerers, number six, idolaters, number seven, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Some translations translate that word faithless as unbelieving. When I was getting my life right with God at the age of 20, uh, our church had an old-fashioned revival. 
And in that revival, we had a Jewish evangelist who had been born in Russia uh, and then had migrated to America, had been a lawyer, and then God saved him, and he became a very, very faithful and very effective evangelist. He could scare the pajabbers out of you, I would add that. And I remember still to this day that he preached a 20-minute sermon on Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. And he read through the verse, and then he said in that message, oh, no, 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 I've read it too quickly, haven't I? Let me go back one more time and make sure we understand what the Bible is saying. And this is what he did. But as for the cowardly and the unbelieving, the detestable and the unbelieving, murderers and the unbelieving, sexually immoral and the unbelieving, sorcerers and the unbelieving, idolaters and the unbelieving, all liars and the unbelieving, they will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. And he reminded us, as we need to be reminded again, the core and the root of all of those sins that he lists there. And by the way, that is not intended to be exhaustive. It is simply a selective representation of those who have chosen to pursue a sinful lifestyle confirmed in their rebellion against God. At the core of all sin is unbelief. And yet, praise God, we no longer have to fear the second death. We no longer have to fear hell, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone because we live as God's adopted children with no fear of the second death. Number six, the new Jerusalem will be like a perfect city. The new Jerusalem will be like a perfect city. Now, what we're going to see very quickly in verse 9 through verse 21 is that first, the new Jerusalem is declared and described as a sacred spouse. Then secondly, we will see that the new Jerusalem looks like the holy of holies, and therefore it is a sacred space. So a sacred spouse and a sacred space. First of all, it is the beautiful bride of the Lamb, verses 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. That is a reference, of course, back to the bowl judgments of Revelation 15 and 16, which is the final of the three judgments that God pours out on the rebellious world. And so this angel came, and he spoke to me, and he said, Come, and I will show you the bride. And he explains what he means by the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so, and this is the fourth time it is mentioned in the book, of Revelation, the fourth and final, he carried me, verse 10, away in the Spirit. And in contrast to when he was taken to see the vision of the great harlot, uh, Babylon, where he was taken out into the wilderness, a place of desolation, no, this time he is taken to a mountain. And many times in the Bible, the mountain, of course, being up and out represents the nearness and the presence of God. In fact, one of the things you might enjoy doing sometime is work your way through just the Gospel of Matthew and note how many times mountains appear and what takes place when those mountains appear. So, he is carried away by the Holy Spirit in verse 10. 
to a great high mountain. And here he has showed an expanded vision of the holy city, Jerusalem. And he repeats the phrase of verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, to John's, uh, the best of his ability, he tries to describe the indescribable. And here's what he says. It had the glory of God. And its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. That speaks of God's glory. But then he says it's also a place of security. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Now hang on to that because in a moment... We'll see that particular phrase paralleled by the 12 names of the 12 apostles, which I believe simply speaks of the fact that all the people of God now constitute the church, the bride of Christ. But he says there, the 12 angels uh, uh, are at the 12 gates protecting it, uh, serving, if you like, as, uh, as heavenly sentries. Uh, 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 and on the gates... The names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were scribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. You say, is there any significance to that? Well, I would say this. It certainly speaks of access. It certainly speaks of whether you come from the north or the south or the east or the west. If you come as part of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, why, you can enter into this city from any direction. And then he says in verse 14, it is a sturdy city. It is a very stable place because the wall of the city has 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So it is a sacred spouse, a beautiful place, a secure place, a place that we will long to dwell in forever and ever. But then he also tells us it is the holy of holies where God is glorified, verse 15 down through verse 21. Look at what he writes. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Using a rod of gold, of course, symbolizes great worth and great value. And then he describes the city for us. Now, let me be very clear. I, I've heard some wonderful, faithful Bible teachers uh, who have the same eschatology that I do. They are premillennial. Uh, they are pre-tribulational. Uh, of course, because of that, they are very uh, quick to operate, as I believe we should, with a literal, natural hermeneutic. But again, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, highly, highly symbolic. And so do I think that what is described here in verses 15 and following is to be taken literally? No, I don't. I think rather it is to be understood symbolically, and what it is picturing for us, as I alluded to a moment ago, is the Holy of Holies, talking about the fact that in the New Jerusalem is the most sacred place where man met with God, and now, believe it or not, because we're all priests, we get to go in and enter into the very Holy of Holies, not on earth, but the Holy of Holies in heaven. And here's what he says, verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height, 
they are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, which again reminds us of the Holy of Holies. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. You say, what's the significance of that? I have no idea. Evidently, angels measure things the same way we do, so that's kind of encouraging to me. Uh, that will at least cut down on some of the uh, interpretive challenges we will have in heaven. But then he goes now to describe just how valuable, how magnificent is this place called the New Jerusalem. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass, taking us back to the vision of chapter 4. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And here he lists 12 total, and most likely this is reflective of the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. And of course, we now know that we have a great high priest, don't we? And his name is Jesus. Well, the foundation of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophras, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates, well, they were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. You know, we often talk about, and I enjoy talking about uh, walking on the streets of gold when we get to heaven, and I do believe that all the streets will be gold, but actually here it just speaks of a single street of gold, but I think the purpose is this. This street of gold leads to a very specific place. It leads to the very throne of God that now we all have freedom and we all have access to it. And so the Bible tells us the new Jerusalem will be like a perfect city. Number seven, the new Jerusalem will also be like a perfect temple. Verse 22 through verse 27. And I saw no temple in the city. But there is a temple, and it's a perfect temple, for its temple is now the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And because the temple is now the Lord himself, and because the light of the world is now seated, seated upon the throne alongside his Father, the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine it. Why? Because the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the lamb and look at this by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it i don't want to read too much into that verse but i do think it teaches us a couple of things number one uh, nations uh, uh ethnic identity will still be present in the eternal state but at the same time we also know that we are now one big family uh, all worshiping the same god all adoring the same Savior, all indwelt by the same precious Holy Spirit, but there will be some type of ethnic identity that will still be maintained for all of eternity, which also teaches us that ethnic distinctions is a good thing given by 
our God. And so the Bible says, the light by the light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth, rulers, will bring their glory into it. And because this is the city of God where there's no death, no sorrow, no pain, no sin, well, guess what? Unlike the ancient cities that would lock tightly their gates at night, oh, no, no, this gate will never be shut. Uh, these gates will never be shut, and furthermore, there will never be any night there. No, nothing foreboding, uh, nothing scary, nothing that would cause us to fret. Indeed, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But one more contrast in chapter 21, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we have the joy of being in a new Jerusalem, which is very much like a perfect temple. But number three, uh, number eight, excuse me, and finally, the new Jerusalem will be like a perfect garden. It will be like a perfect garden. In verses 22 through 27, John has described heaven and the new Jerusalem in particular as a temple city. But now in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, he talks about it in the context of a garden city. Look what it says, because here we see Eden regained and more. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. By the way, he is picking up on the imagery both of Genesis 1 and 2, but also Ezekiel chapter 47. The river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And it flowed through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. And so the idea of eternal life perpetually being preserved for us is there in this beautiful city. And in addition to that, it is a place not only of eternal life, it is a place of abundant life. And in the symbolism, he tells us that the tree of life, well, it has 12 kinds of fruit, and it doesn't yield its fruit once a year. No, 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 no. It yields its fruit every single month. Furthermore, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Just again, a reminder that every vestige of sin is eradicated in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Everything will be perfect. Everything will be as God always intended for those wonderfully made in his image and likeness. But then he tells us in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So let me just remind you, sometimes uh, people will say kind of cynically or playfully, well, I don't want to go to heaven. Uh, it's going to be boring. Uh, what fun would it be uh, floating on a cloud and strumming a harp? I have no idea where they got such an idiotic idea because you cannot find it anywhere in the Bible. What you do find in the Bible is that the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem are going to be wonderful places of exploration and newness. We will have the joy for all of eternity 
of exploring the new creation and the new heavens and learning more and more and more. Furthermore, there'll be service. There'll be service. Now, sometimes I hear people say, well, I wouldn't be happy if I don't have a particular kind of job in heaven. I'll tell you something, folks. If I get to heaven and God tells me that I'm going to be a, a janitor, I will drop to my knees and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that I get to be a janitor for you. Whatever you want me to do, just like in this life, whatever you want me to do, that's what I want to do. And whatever occupation you want to give me, I will be absolutely fine with that. Why? Because of another wonderful promise in the Bible, verse 4, they will see his face and his name uh, identifying our, our possession by God and our identity with him. His name will be on their foreheads. Again, many times I've been asked throughout my life and my ministry, uh, Brother Danny, when we get to heaven, will we get to see God? Because, you know, the Bible does say that no one can look at God and live. And every time God appears in the Scriptures, those who are granted an appearance of the Lord are dropped to their knees and struck down. And many of them, uh, as the Bible says, fall as if dead. But you see, in heaven, all vestiges of sin are gone. We are now glorified. And the Bible tells us that when we get to heaven, yes, we will see God, and particularly, we will see Jesus. And so because we will see Jesus and we will be able to see God, would we not delight not only in worshiping him, but also in serving him? And once more, he re reiterates in verse 5, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In his very fine study of the book of Revelation, uh, Chuck Swindoll, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, now a pastor in Dallas, uh, lists some of the wonderful things that the Bible promises for us that just naturally emerge out of Revelation 21 and 22. I think it's a wonderful way to close our study this morning. And here's what he said. What can we look forward to in heaven? Number one, no more sea because chaos and calamity will have been eradicated. Number two, no more tears because hurtful memories will be replaced. Number three, no more death because mortality will be swallowed up by life. Number four, no more mourning because sorrow will be completely comforted. Number five, no more crying because the sounds of weeping will be soothed. Number six, no more pain because all human suffering will be cured. Number seven, no more thirst because God will graciously quench all desires. Number eight, no more wickedness because all evil will be banished. Number nine, no more temple because the Father and Son are personally present. Number 10, no more night, because God's glory will give eternal light. Number 11, no more closed gates, because God's door will always be open. And number 12, no more curse, 
because Christ's blood has forever lifted that curse. As the song says, when we all get to heaven, what a wonderful day that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll shout the victory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the glorious promise that every child of God has of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And I thank you, Lord, that their sin is completely gone, the curse completely eradicated. But, Lord, of all the things that we have just read about in these passages and in these verses, I don't think anything delights my heart more than to know that in heaven uh, I will be your son in intimate, uh, close uh, relationship, and I will get to see you every single moment for all of eternity. And, Lord, I can't wait. I cannot wait to be in your presence, to see my Savior face to face. And, yes, Lord, uh, learn more and more about you for all of eternity and serve you for all of eternity. What a wonderful blessing it will be. What a glorious privilege. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the promise of heaven. We ask and pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.